scripture, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6, and take our thoughts through a little study on some of God's promises. Let me read it for you. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6 simply says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Promises do something to us. Someone makes a promise to you and it fills us with excitement or energy or gives us some invigoration over whatever the promise is made. There's hope connected to it. We thrive on promises. In fact, there's promises all around us. The promise of a new diet that will cause us to have epic weight loss. The promise of a new wardrobe that will give us confidence beyond compare. Promises of a new car that will make the commute to work so serene. Promises of a new bed that will give you rejuvenating sleep. All those promises that are out there, to some degree we buy into those and we get excited about it. But promises, though they're interwoven into almost every area of life, not every promise comes true. In fact, When you even hear a promise, you know right away that the value of it's tied to both the character and the capacity of the person making it. There's some people who make you a promise and you think, well, I don't know. I kind of know that person and I doubt that they're actually going to do it. If you're a parent, you hear those promises from kids. I promise I'll clean my room if I just have whatever. And as a parent, you think, eh, not going to happen. Promises are tied to the the character and the capacity of the person who makes it. And almost all the promises of the world don't come true. They don't offer, they offer hope and they offer comfort and they offer security, but they don't deliver it, no matter what the product is. It's true in human relationships. It's true in work environments. It's true in life. There's a promise that is made to us by this world that if we just have enough money, we'll be happy. If we just have enough possessions, we'll be content. If we just have enough of the contents that's out there, then we'll have security. And as believers, we turn to the Word of God, and it shows us how empty that promise is, but it also shows us how fulfilling and how satisfying the promises of God are. What's in this text is written about 40 years after Jesus walked the earth, 40 years after he had been crucified on the cross, rose from the grave, and then ascended back to heaven. It's written to a growing Christian community, predominantly Jews. That's why the book is entitled Hebrews. That's who it's written to. People who had come to know Christ as Lord and Savior received this message, and it meant the world to them. In fact, as you go through the whole book of Hebrews, it's talking about the power of Christ and the lordship of Christ, the authority of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. And you get to the end of this book in chapter 13, and he kind of turns the corner a little bit and gives us a list in the first few verses of things that Christians do in light of all of that content about who Christ is, things that we love. Verse 1 says, let the love of the brethren continue, and he's simply saying, love each other. Be a church, be a body of believers that has a warmth and an excitement and encouragement about being together. Enjoy each other. Build those relationships. Verse 2 says, love strangers. It says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. You may be thinking, I've entertained a lot of strangers, and I'm pretty sure most of them are not angels. 
But the author says, show that hospitality, show that kindness to everyone because you don't know who's actually there. Verse 3 says, don't forget the prisoners. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, as those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. He didn't say why they're in prison. He just says, remember those who are incarcerated. They're part of the family of Christ. Don't forget them. Verse 4 gives us this critical warning to protect the marriage that God's given you. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And so he gives four things that believers love, and then to verse 5, he shows us one thing that believers are not to love. And that's where we dive in, right into a statement that pierces our heart and exposes our motives. He says, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Make sure that your character, who you actually are, your heart, your soul, the real you, is liberated, is independent from affection towards finances. Said another way, make sure that your character, your attitude is never changed by your checking account. Whether you have a lot of money or you have no money should have no bearing on your joy, no bearing, no altering of your attitude. That's the way he says it, is that who we are doesn't change based upon what we have. He's not saying to have a cavalier or a reckless attitude towards finances. He just says money should not change the way we act, should not change the way we think, should not change the joy that we have. My attitude has to operate independently of my finances. You say, why do we battle with that? Because we live in a world that's driven by finances. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I like to pay my bills and I like to eat and I like to be able to provide for my family. Basic things that we are given the task to do. And all that's contingent upon, some degree, resources. But what he's saying here is, whether you have or have not, does not change your attitude. A.W. Pink said it this way, Covetousness is rooted in the fear of need, while discontentment generally arises from a suspicion that our present portion will prove to be inadequate for the supply of our needs. You see how mental this is? That fear and suspicion, fear of what's going to happen and suspicion of whether I have enough to provide for that mixed together, causing in us a doubt that says, I don't know if God's going to provide. And then with that, we turn into covetous people where we say, I want more. I want more. Then that's lit on fire by jealousy of what someone else has or is perceived to have. Then that fuels into even malice at times where you say, I'm going to get that. I want to stop them from having that. I want that. All of that is the sparks of discontentment. All of that is exactly what the writer is talking about here. All the coveting after wealth, after positions, after possessions, doesn't lead to contentment. It only feeds the desire for more. And so he says, make sure that your character is free from this, independent of this. Do the work to think about your heart and determine whether or not you are guilty. I am guilty of watching my joy, watching my contentment, watching my satisfaction, watching just my peace rise and fall on a tide of personal finances. So the author takes it a step further then. And he says, not only be free from the character love of money, something to stop doing, but something to start doing. He says, be content with what you have. 
Be content with what you have. Now, that's not a, like a demotiv- demotivational poster. Remember those talked about, you know, like maybe your life is an example for others not to follow. You know, those kind of comments. What he's saying by be content is he's not trying to take away your work ethic. He's not trying to take away your striving to do better or to earn more, or to be more efficient with your time and make more money. He's not restricting you to driving a thrashed car and living on top ramen soup. He's saying that there is a contentment that needs to characterize all of us. You keep the same humble, holy, joyful, sensible attitude no matter what you gain or what you lose. Be content with it. Be content with your spouse. Be content with your checking account. Be content with your children or your infertility. Be content with your job. Be content with the season of life you're in where you're striving to find a different job. Have a contentment about you that says God is at work even in ways I cannot perceive doing things I don't necessarily need to understand. I just need to know that the surgeon is doing his work in my life. Be content. Get above the inventory and decide to be content with what you have. You want to test on this front? Watch what happens when it goes away. Watch what happens when those possessions evaporate. Let me give you an illustration. Don't have to turn there, but Luke 18, mark that down. Luke 18, you have the rich ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, explains the gospel and says, sell all your possessions and give it to the poor Come follow me and you'll have eternal life. In Luke 18, 23, the rich man, having understood what Jesus said, the text says, became very sad for he was extremely rich. He had all the wealth. And when Christ pierced his heart with the challenge to abandon everything that he had his identity in, at that point he got angry. At that point he got sad. At that point he walked away. Because he said, I'm not willing to trade my stuff for eternal life. I'll give you an illustration on the other side of the spectrum is Job. Extremely wealthy. You go back and read the book of Job, you'll find he's marked as one of the wealthiest men on the planet. Extraordinary capacity, extraordinary ownership of so many different things. And in the span of just a few minutes, I mean, if you read Job chapter 1, just a couple minutes, a servant comes blasting in the door and says that a band of raiders came along and took away his camels and his oxen and swept them away and killed all the servants and only this one escaped to come and tell him. And before that servant could finish speaking, another one comes racing in and says that fire fell from heaven, consumed all the sheep, killed all the servants, and this one alone escaped to tell him. And before that one could even finish speaking, another servant comes racing in and says that all your sons and daughters are gathered in the oldest son's household and the building fell and collapsed and all of them were killed and he alone escaped to tell him. And here's Job with three cataclysmic reports come blasting in all at once. He's left standing there with now nothing but his own wife, himself, these three servants and whatever's right around him. And we haven't even got to Job chapter 2 where he loses his own health and everything else implodes. But in the moment of hearing that his possessions are gone, Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord give 
and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the response of a godly man. That's the response of a man whose heart is not tied to his stuff. Who looks at all of it and can appreciate it all and enjoy it all and be selfless with it and generous with it, but not tied to it. It says God gives and God takes away and I'll praise him regardless. That's a man who is content with what he had. A man whose character is free from the love of money. Christ would remind us in Luke 12, 15, beware and be on guard against every form of greed for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Not even when your life is overflowing with stuff and you've got to build more barns to hold the stuff does your life consist of possessions. We find our comfort in our creator, not the creation. Our contentment is a decision to live thankful, grateful, but independent of our possessions, dependent upon the inventor of of everything. R.C. Sproul said it this way, even if the budget is never balanced, even if the stock market crashes, even if food prices skyrocket and my child never recovers from her illness, even if I lose my job, and even if we lose our home, yet I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I'll rejoice. Why should we be free from the love of money? Why should we be content with what we have? Because there's a promise that is now presented to us. And that's where we're going to study for our time this morning. The writer says, eliminate these things from your life. Eliminate that greed. Eliminate that covetousness, that discontentment. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. I want to show you four aspects of this promise today. Four aspects. The first one is God's presence. Four things we get with this promise. And you may have read this promise as I have countless times, but never actually studied it, but we're going to look at it now. First part you get is God's presence. And this is tied to the first statement before you get to the promise. It says, he himself has said. That shows us who's talking. That God himself wants you to know that he's talking to you directly. Not talking to a bigger group of people and just a general audience, but he's looking at you as his son or daughter, and he has something that he wants you to individually know that he is bringing to you. You get God's presence. He says that he's the creator. He invented humans. I just love the fact that we get to speak to our inventor. I mean, there's probably some inventors in the room, some people who maybe you've enveloped a little thing and you developed it and you made that and maybe you patented it and that's pretty cool. But what about the one who invented humans? He made us, designed us, and now he himself is speaking to us. That tells us that there is nothing subjective about what's going to be said here. Back to our human level of promises. I may promise you something, but it's contingent upon weather and humidity levels and all the economic factors that go involved and scheduling conflicts. And I could say, I promise I'll be there, but there's a thousand things that could disrupt that promise. But when the creator says, I'm promising you something, there's nothing subjective about it. There's nothing contingent upon other factors. It's a promise that's built upon the character and the capacity of the one making it. 
But this promise isn't a new promise. In fact, it's one that first shows up in the book of Deuteronomy, verse 30, chapter 31, verse 6, where Moses is about to die, and in his final words to Israel, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them, at the enemies. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. What Moses is saying is, God is with you. To the people of Israel, God is with you. He's not going to fail you. He's not going to forsake you. And just a little while later, God is now speaking to Joshua, who is the now leader of Israel. And the creator of the universe says to Joshua, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. This is a historic promise that God made to the children of Israel, his precious people that he protected and provided for, that we could read about and see all the myriad of ways that God was faithful to his promise. And then he turns and gives us that same promise today. An absolute, unconditional promise. One that cannot and will not be broken. In fact, just a few chapters earlier, Hebrews 6, it says, It's impossible for God to lie. We who would have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. An anchor of our soul. The fact that we have this promise, it's such a comfort, and it's guaranteed by his character. This isn't just a promise, though, that's made to the people whose faces you might expect to see on the Mount Rushmore of the Bible. Like, who are those faces that would be carved in the rock, the Abraham and the Joshua, the David, Paul? It's a promise that's made to each and every individual believer who may live in the shadows of life where no one will ever know your name but God himself gives you his presence. This is what's in David's mind when he writes Psalm 23, verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what's it say? I'll fear no evil because you are with me. Or Psalm 139, David writes, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, if I go up high, you're there. If I ascend into Sheol or the grave, if I go down, you're there. But then he says, if I take the wings of the dawn. Do you know what that means? The wings of the dawn. That's David's way of describing light speed. When the, when the sun crests a mountain in the morning, the sunrise comes up and that sun breaks over the top of that mountain and rockets across everything you see and smashes against another hill. David says, if I could get on the leading edge of that beam of light and take the wings of the dawn and rip across the sky, I'd get over there. And he says, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. That's David's word picture for light speed. He says, if I go up, you're there. If I go down, you're there. If I get on light speed and travel across the universe, you're there. I've got your presence with me at all times. And as Christians, we have that enduring promise from Matthew 28, 20. I am always with you, even to the end of the age. That God gives us his spirit that indwells us. The first aspect of this promise I want you to have in your mind is that we get his presence. 
I know certainly that presence is sometimes muted by our own sin, by our own disobedience, by distraction with other things, by our doubts, but he is there. Second, we get God's provision. We get God's provision. We get his presence, but we get his provision. You can't separate who he is from what he does. He says, I am with you. We get him, but we also get everything that he brings. Everything that goes with him. The full storehouses of his grace are brought to bear on our lives. Grace to endure. Grace to suffer loss. Grace to love others. Grace to sacrifice. Grace to forgive. His peace, his love, his kindness, his mercy. We get him, but we also get who he is and what he does. We get grace and we get mercy. Listen to this verse from just a few chapters earlier, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. It says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. We get God, whose son Jesus Christ experienced the difficulties of life in every way we experience it. Every category was put before him. He knows the temptations we experience He knows the loneliness, he knows the fear, he knows the betrayal, he knows the grief, he knows what it is to be lied about, to be slandered, to be abused, he knows what it is to be forsaken, falsely accused, he knows what it is to lose loved ones, all of that he knows. But verse 16 of Hebrews 4 says, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so we may receive mercy And find grace to help in time of need. We receive mercy, God holding back what we deserve. And we are then given grace, God giving us what we do not deserve in each time of need. That's his provision. He promises to provide. That's Matthew chapter 6. And I don't know your anxiety battle and your worry battle. But mark down Matthew chapter 6 in your notes. Because this is where Christ describes that we're not to be worried about our life. We're not to be worried about what we'll eat or drink or our body for what we would put on as clothing. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow nor reap or gather into barns, but God feeds them. He cares for that bird and provides for that bird. How much more is your life worth than that bird? He says, verse 27 of Matthew 6, who of you being worried can add a single hour to his life? Is your worry going to extend your life? No. What about clothing? He says, verse 28, look at the lily of the field. That beautiful flower in all of its radiance outshines everything that Solomon tried to decorate his life with. God adorns that flower of the field and he feeds that that bird of the air. And he says to you, so then do not worry. But verse 33 says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness And all these things will be added to you. You seek first him. And then everything will be provided. The chapter then ends with verse 34. So do not worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Is that not true? Every day has enough worries of its own. My grandmother always told me, don't do your thinking at night. Nothing gets better the darker it gets. She always said, just go to sleep. It'll be there in the morning. 
And, you know, that was, a, that was a axiomatic proverb, you know, from just a wise lady who walked with Christ for, for many, many years. But it comes right out of verse 34. Don't worry about tomorrow. Each day is enough worry of its own. There's no Costco for grace. I can't go get a pallet load of grace and wheel it home and say, well, here's my, my closet full of grace, and I'll just go get extra today. Like, no, there's only grace for today, and there'll be abundant grace for tomorrow, but I can't import tomorrow's worries into today and expect to solve that. There's enough grace for today, and there's no grace for your imagination. The trouble you imagine, the what if and the if only, there's no grace for that. There's only grace for the reality of life, and that's for today. And so what Christ is telling us in Matthew and what the writer of Hebrews is telling us is that we get God, we get his presence, we get his provision, and then third, we get his permanence. This promise he gives to us is a permanent promise. It's not a promise for a season, not a promise for a situation. It's not contingent upon circumstances, all aligning only on those bad days, but it's a permanent promise. But let me show you how it works. Look at the wording of it. It says, I'm reading from the New American Standard, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Those are two words, desert and forsake. Those are two words that involve two completely different actions. To desert means that you stay here and I'm going to walk away from you. Follow this. If I'm going to desert you, it's you stay here. Don't follow me. I'm leaving. I'm never coming back. I don't ever want to see you again. I'm done with you. Stay away from me. You stay there. I'm leaving. The second word is forsake. And forsake means I stay here and you get out of here. Go away. Don't ever come back. I don't want to see you again. Never come back this pathway. One abandons you here while I walk away. The other shoves you away, forces you away while I stay here. Without knowing the stories in this room, those are words we can all relate to. At one level or another, every person in this room knows what it is to be forsaken or abandoned. Different levels, different experience in life, different scar tissue, different stories that we all have. But we know what it is to have someone say to us, don't you ever come back. Or to have someone say to us, I'm leaving, don't follow me. And also in the sinfulness of life, we know what it is to say those things to people. To be the one who forsakes or abandons others. But my friends, none of us, none of us will ever know what it is to be forsaken or abandoned by God. None of us will ever know what it is to be left behind by God or be forced away from God. But Jesus does. Jesus does. 
He hung on the cross in our place and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned your back on me? Isaiah 53 says he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourgings, we are healed. Each of us have gone astray like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. You say, why was God the Father pleased to abandon and forsaken his son? The answer? It's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God abandoned and forsook his son on the cross so that we will never be abandoned or forsaken by God. Do you see that? That Jesus was nailed there by God who left him there so that we will never experience that departure 2 Corinthians 5.21, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And Romans 5.6 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. This was God demonstrating his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That he died in our place knowing the pain and the agony of being forsaken by God, but doing it so that our sin would be paid for, so that its mastery over us would be broken, so that we'd be reconciled with God and made holy, so that God would see us and take us as his sons and daughters, not his enemy. Now, as the text says, these are not the only words Christ cried from the cross. He also said, John nineteen thirty, it is finished. And the power of sin is broken. The sting of death is removed. Our hope and eternity with Christ is settled. And this promise is sealed. So settled is this promise that the author, go back to Hebrews 13, verse 5, uses five consecutive negative words to cement it. Now, kids, let me ask you a question. Kids, let me catch your eyes. If you're asking mom or dad for something. Let's just imagine a world where there's a five-gallon bucket of ice cream, and you say, mom, can I eat the whole thing? And mom says, no, 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 no. No. Just throw another one. Do you think she's serious? I think that's pretty convincing, isn't it? Like, if you get five no's in a row, you know you're hearing something that's pretty staggering. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. He's saying, I will... Never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. It's not going to happen. Five times he's ending each word saying 
the love he has for us is unconditional. His presence, his provision, and his permanence in our life is not going to expire. You know what I also love about this? Is I don't know if you're dyslexic like me, but I love things that work forwards and backwards. And this promise works like that. Because he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. And if you flip it around, it's you forsake or you leave. Never will I. Now think about that for a minute. You forsake Christ or you try to leave Christ. And you know what he says to you? Never will I. Let me give you an illustration. Peter, night before Christ is taken away, Jesus is there explaining what's going to happen. They're going to arrest me, take me away. The cross is in view. And in the typical boisterous, belligerent voice that Peter has, he says, it's never going to happen. I will die with you. It's you and me, Jesus. We're going to go to the grave together. It will never happen. I mean, here's Peter professing his absolute courageous, bold move that he will die. He'll do whatever it takes. It's not going to happen. I'll defend you, Christ. And we even see that when the soldiers come to take Jesus away in the garden. Who's the one who pulls out a sword? Who had a sword in the first place? It's Peter. Peter showed up for the fight, armed, ready to go. And he pulls out a sword and lops the ear off the servant of the high priest. Bold right up until that moment. Jesus is then led away. The night continues. Fast forward through the scene. Jesus had told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And in Luke chapter 22, those three denials take place in rapid succession. The first one, Peter responds, no, I'm not with him. Second one, no, I'm not with him. Third one, absolutely, I'm not with him. Even just vulgar words Peter uses to distance himself from Christ. And don't turn there now, but write it down. Luke 22, verse 61 says that Christ, without a word, looks at Peter. From across wherever they were, a courtyard, a room, wherever it was, they were in close enough distance for Peter and Jesus to make eye contact. And Peter catches the eye of Christ, who in silence looks at him as if to say, you abandon or you forsake, never will I. I'm not going to turn my back on you, Peter, though in this moment you have abandoned and forsaken me. You see how powerful this is? This is a promise that God makes that he's going to guard with his life, that he guarded with his son's life, that cannot be broken. This is Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from God's love. Who's the one who's going to try this? Verse 35 says, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, will distress, persecution, peril, nakedness, sword, famine? For I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
Nothing's going to break this promise. It's permanently given to us. Well, the fourth aspect of this promise, what you see, is God's protection. We have his presence. We have who he is. We have his provision. We have the permanence of it. And last, we have his protection. And that comes to us in verse 6. Because of this promise, we can confidently say, and I love that. He doesn't say, have more faith or get bigger trust levels in your life. He says, there's something you need to say to yourself. I don't know if you have a conversation with yourself every now and then, but you ought to. This is the writer of Hebrews telling us that there are messages that your mind knows that your heart needs to hear. And sometimes that means wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and repeat back to yourself something that God has told you that you need to remember in this moment. You know, it's not the only place in Scripture you see that kind of thing. Write down Lamentations 3, verse 21 to 23. Write that down and go back and read it on your worst day. When your life is at its absolute worst, in your darkest moments, read the entire chapter of Lamentations chapter 3. It starts off with Jeremiah basically saying, God, you forget me. You've abandoned me. You're not paying attention to me. It's, you're, you're the cause of all the trouble in my life. I mean, Jeremiah is saying things that most of our hearts would shake to even verbalize. And then he gets to verse 21, and he says, This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. He needs hope. We need hope. But the way you get hope is not by better emotions and distractions. The way we get hope is by recalling to mind something we already have been told, but in the moment we're forgetting. And Jeremiah is in this panic emotional state and says, wait, wait, stop. I'm remembering something. And he says, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never fail. His compassions never fail. Great is your faithfulness. That's what's going on here. He's telling his heart what it needs to hear. He's preaching a profound truth that we all need to listen to. And so back to Hebrews 13, verse 6. He says, we can confidently say this. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? He's saying he's my helper. He's my supernatural helper. I have the inventor of humans on my side. That's pretty powerful. I have the creator of the universe. I have the owner of storehouses of riches that you can't even imagine. And he's with me. He knows where, when, and how we need help. He stabilizes us against the waves of trouble, protects us from supernatural slander, provides for our needs. What can man do to me? Oh, you can slander all you want, but my job is to pray for you. You can mistreat us and we're told to endure with kindness. You can lie and we're called to speak the truth. This is what's at the heart of even what the psalm that was read earlier, Psalm 46, verse 10, where it says, cease striving to know that I am God. That is such a refreshing, encouraging, calming statement for God to say, hey, settle down. I got this. I am God and I'm with you. Psalm 56.3, when I'm afraid, I'll put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Isaiah 26.3, the steadfast of mine, you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. 1 Peter 5.7, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. 
You say, why should we be free from the love of money? Because we have the unfailing promise that God is with us. That's the promise we have. What can man do to me? Take my things, take my reputation, take my life. But you can't take my eternal home. You cannot take my eternal fellowship. You cannot take my eternal inheritance and you cannot touch my joy. The hymn, How Firm a Foundation, I believe is based and flows out of this verse. The words say, How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? Fear not, I am with thee. O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the river of sorrows shall not overflow. For I will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That so though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. He himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, and let's say this together. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the promise we have that you are with us. You are with us, not just in a memory that we share from an experience long time ago, not just in a hope that we have of eternity with you, but in this moment, throughout this room, you are with each child of yours. Lord, I pray for those in this room who don't know you, who do not know this promise. I pray that today would be the day they turn their lives to you, that they repent of their sin and believe in you. Thank you for the calming assurance that this promise is. May we grasp tightly to it in the middle of the night, in the hopeless hour. May we hold tightly to your promise to be with us, that you provide, you protect, and you will give grace in time of need. May we hold that faith fast until we see you face to face. In your name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.